today on Ag News Daily. Quick example of that would be like our next premium product. And this is from a collaborator in Southern Europe that's looking at plants under stress. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here coming to you with today's edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. And I am joined, as always, by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing today? Pretty good, Mike. How about you? You know, not too bad at all. Although I'm I'm doing this podcast a little bit heartbroken, if Why? I'm honest. Why is that, Mike? Well, I just had Brian Feldbach out here. He is a rep with Big Iron Auctions, and I have listed my feed wagon on an auction. It's going away, and it makes me very sad. It's the one piece of equipment I have that is actually in good shape and does everything <laughs> it's supposed to. Oh, so it's the but, one uh, piece of equipment that you might actually like make money on and not just have to take it to the scrapyard. Well, given my luck, I'm sure it'll end up getting scrap prices anyway, despite the fact that it's in working order. You know, who knows? But uh, but I'm sad. You know, it was a good it was a good little feed wagon. It did did great for me. So, listeners, if you're in the market for a smaller <laughs> sized Rotomix feed wagon, I've got a 26012 that'll be on the uh, one of the auctions ending mid February up there at Big Iron. So be sure to check it out and uh, bid bid bid. Keep those hands in the air or whatever it is you do on the internet. That's nice. Just have a personal plug there for your own equipment you're trying to sell. Absolutely. There's also a Gale 308 V-Rake will be on that same sale. It is a uh, three-point attachment V-Rake, four new wheels, works like a boss. If you're in the market mm. for one of those, check out that auction. Great. Help help alleviate some of my heartbreak. <laughs> help alleviate some of your farm debt. Yeah, 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 something <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh. Uh, so, uh, that's my personal news. But, Delaney, do you know the reason why I, I have to sell this stuff? Uh, yeah. Well, though there's numerous reasons, but one yeah. of them is Netflix is raising its monthly fees oh, for subscribers between 13 and 18% this year. How much do you think it's going to change from then? Well, it'll be like, I think it's like 10 bucks or so a month now. That'll make it like a dollar eighty more. It'd be like 12 bucks a month. I think I pay 14 Oh, well, so Heidi writes the checks. I guess I don't know what they charge. <laughs> Maybe it's well, I have 14, lots then it's going to be like $17. I like I have lots of family members that like to mooch off of my Netflix account. So if my father or my brother or my mother is listening, it'd be great if you guys wanted to pay for Netflix sometimes and quit using my account. Delaney, I know that you don't have your own Amazon Prime account. Maybe you ought to be cautious <laughs> about calling people to the table on uh, paying That's for your true. Netflix account. There's like 30 people that use my cousin's Amazon Prime account. I am not the only abuser of that. Well, I'm sure Jeff Bezos listens to us, and now he's probably going to go through his records and find your cousin <laughs> and, and you know, charge him 1300 bucks a year. Well, he's not worth as much money anymore, so he, he'll be fighting for that extra dollar. Oh, that's true. Delaney, of course, is referencing Jeff Bezos' pending divorce. He's worth about half what he was before. Yes, that is true. Or were you talking about your cousin? Not being nope, near I'm talking about Jeff Bezos. Okay. Well, there we go. So that's some, some non-ag news, but still relevant, I think, to a lot of our listeners who are Netflix and <laughs> Amazon subscribers. Absolutely. I just signed up for um, HBO last night so I could watch Game of Thrones. Woohoo! Oh, see, I've never seen Game of Thrones. Oh, Is it good? Favorite. Yeah, I'll give you my login. Might as well. Might as well. Yes, indeed. Share it. Share <laughs> if anybody it. else on the podcast wants to watch Game of Thrones, just message me on Twitter and I'll share it with you as well. <laughs> we can do a whole Ag News Daily pirating Game of Thrones watch party. Oh, perfect. They love it. Well, you can only have three people watching at a time. 
So we'd have oh. to take shifts, maybe. I think we could make that work. Fine with me. All right. Well, Anyways. now that we've got all that important <laughs> news out of the way, what other news do you have? Perhaps something yes. related to agriculture? Yes. Interestingly enough, um, Gary Rasmussen was messaging me this morning on Facebook Messenger asking me what's going on with Steve King's deal, Iowa Representative Steve King, who, Mm -hmm. of course, represents the most agriculturally intensive and I think the most productive agricultural district in the entire nation is being stripped of his white or of his House Committee assignments which uh, will also take away, I believe, his voting rights and his position, senior position on the agriculture and judiciary panels as a punishment for some of his racially insensitive comments. Of course, he said, no, that was taken out of context. The story that was reported in the New York Times last week, he was quoted as saying, uh, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? And of course, after the article appeared, King tried to, you know, not retaliate, but come back and say that he just called himself a nationalist and does not support white supremacy and that this was taken out of context. Um, But it it appears that uh, that doesn't matter. He is being stripped regardless. Yes, and uh, he published a statement kind of trying to put those comments into better context. And I, once he, he wrote it, I can see where, oh boy, it's it's hard to defend anything that lumps together white mm. nationalist, white supremacist, and Western civilization into the same group. But in his statement, that's not what he did. Here's his full quote that he published um, yesterday in answer to all of this uh, hullabaloo. He said, we discussed the worn out label, quote, racist and my observation that other slanderous labels have been increasingly assigned to conservatives by the left, left, who injected into our current political dialogue such terms as Nazi, fascist, white nationalist, white supremacist. Then he's got a comma and a big long dash. So mm-hmm. to me, that indicates a new thought. Then he says, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? Why did I sit in classes teaching me about the merits of our history and our civilization? Ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. Um, So it seems clear to me that he was saying, how did Western civilization become an offensive term? But at the end of the day, you know, I think that the GOP is looking for a way to distance themselves from Steve King. You know, he has made other comments in the past. I was going to say, it's not like he's completely interested. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at his website, he does have some language, especially as related to immigration and immigration reform, that could be taken as a little racist, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, here's something I never hear discussed amongst the, you know, they're always like, oh, how can these people keep electing Steve King? And I'm not in Steve King's district. I'm mm-hmm. in, uh, yeah. I forget her name. We got a new rep this year. Um Finkenauer, Abby Finkenauer's district. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Every time I've met Steve King, the reason in my yeah. mind that he keeps getting reelected is because he is a fantastic retail politician. Steve King gets out there when he talks to people. He remembers names. He remembers details. You know, he he really has a way when you meet him in person to be completely disarming. And he, he's really rather charming in yeah. person. And granted, I'm I'm a white guy. I'm not a, a Mexican immigrant. Maybe maybe it's different. But I find that hard to believe. And and I never hear that discussed. That's why he keeps winning. It's not that. Iowans are racist and you know we all think right. 
racist thoughts. It's that he's just a really good politician when it comes to the interpersonal meet and greet stuff, which is why, you know, he does have a, a primary challenger. It'll be interesting to see how this 2020 election shakes out for uh, Representative King. Yes, it will be very interesting, especially with this now coming to fruition. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It'll be it'll be interesting. You know, I I would hate to lay any money on this going one way or the other mm. just because Steve King is so good yeah. at the, the meet and greet type of small town politics yeah. that wins races. Yeah, I mean even people Yeah, even people that don't like some of his policy, I think have the same thought process that you do, Mike. Right. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I'm not I'm pretty much I'm pretty well pro immigration in general, but uh yeah. I mean, every time I meet him, I'm like, oh, golly, Steve King, he's just so friendly. And that's just the effect he has on people mm-hmm. when you meet him in person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think President Trump also can have that effect on people when he meets them in person. And he addressed a crowd yesterday at the American Farm Bureau Federation. I know that that has been kind of at the top of my mind today. Mike, I don't know if you've read up a whole lot on his speech yesterday. No, I haven't. I've been crying over my feed wagon. <laughs> well, let me fill you in. So he arrived late. No surprise there. But uh, earlier this week, we saw Zippy Duvall, who is the American Farm Bureau Federation president, tell AgriPulse in particular that he wanted to hold President Trump accountable. But unfortunately, because President Trump arrived so late, he wasn't, Zippy really wasn't able to get any questions or comments into President Trump and really just had to exchange casualties. However, President Trump spent a large majority of his time talking about really two things, and I think they will come as no surprise to anyone. The first is to uh, press his case for border wall funding, and the second was to discuss trade and China issues that have been going on. So I'm not sure that I would consider really anything breaking news that he discussed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like he announced anything new, but really did focus a lot of his time talking about building the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah, which has been, of course, the focus of his for, well, at least the past 25 days here now that we've shut down the government, <laughs> but certainly going back to the campaign. And yeah, it's uh, he made a campaign promise repeatedly and he's, it certainly sounds like from that speech that he's going to continue sticking to his guns on some type of barrier between the U.S. and Mexico. Yes, it does sound like that. Well, while we're on the topic of trade, we got some news that uh, Canadian Foreign Minister Christia Freeland spoke with U.S. Trade Rep Robert Lighthizer today. Uh, they talked predominantly about the steel and aluminum tariffs that are placed on Mexican steel and aluminum, or excuse me, Canadian steel and aluminum coming over our border. And we don't know what exactly was resolved by their conversation, but Canada does continue to strongly oppose these steel tariffs. And she said, quote, now is the time to energetically continue our work on this matter, referring to getting these tariffs lifted. However, there are still no movements to actually get those tariffs lifted that we uh, that we know about, at least mm-hmm. that are being publicly discussed. Yeah, nothing at the moment that we know of. But I'm sure there's a lot of things that go on behind closed doors we have no idea about, including what happened really last week in Beijing with the U.S.-Chinese negotiations. Um, According to a couple of sources who uh, spoke with AgriPulse reporters, 
Sounds like U.S. negotiators focused a majority of their time talking about ag and ag, how ag has been affected by the ongoing, quote, trade wars with China. Um, and it sounds like their focus was really to figure out how Chinese regulations like bans on hormone growth hormones and biotechs and whatnot can get those out of the way. Um, in, uh, what's not intelligence? Um, I'm losing the word. Artificial mm. intelligence? No. Machine tech, learning? AI? Uh, tech stuff. Just all the tech stuff. That, intellectual property? Yes, thank you. I don't know. That was there slipping my brain. Yes. Intellectual property um, and whatnot were also discussed. But President Trump made a quote yesterday at uh, in New Orleans and said, quote, we're doing very well with China. They're having a hard time with their economy because of tariffs. We're doing very well with our economy. China wants to negotiate. I have a great relationship with President Xi, and I have relationships with almost everybody, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So he continues to uh, to feel like we're making moves in rural America and in trade in general. Yeah, and I know one of the things they talked about uh, quite a bit. The American Farm Bureau was uh, listing off some of their policy successes, including the tax reform package, getting the farm bill done more or less on time. It was still late, <laughs> yeah. but more on time than the 2014 farm bill. And of course, the repeal of WOTUS. Delaney, water continues to be a hot topic across the country with this new WOTUS bill eventually coming out, that, or new WOTUS rule. But in California, Water is, as we'd imagine, an incredibly daunting subject. Yes, it is. They go through droughts very often. Right. I mean, then there's just a pile of people there. Yes. Well, we've got a report here from our friend Patrick Cavanaugh, and uh, he's with California Ag Today. He's based out of Fresno, California, and he's got a report on the California Water Resources Control Board and how they're moving forward with a proposed environmental diversion of up to 40% from three different rivers which supply farmers and cities. So let's turn it over to Patrick Cavanaugh. The board members of the State Water Resources Control Board voted December 12th to proceed with their unimpaired flows proposal on the Tuolumne, Stanislaw, and Merced Rivers, putting farmers and communities in peril of losing a big part of their water resources. They're calling for upwards of 40% unimpaired flows from three tributary rivers flowing into the San Joaquin River, flowing into the Delta to increase flows for salmon and other species. Melissa Williams is the public affairs spokesperson for Modesto Irrigation District, which would be devastated by this proposal if it ultimately goes through. It's going to have devastating and unavoidable consequences to our customers. It'll affect not only our farmers, but also our urban community. Um, Modesto Irrigation District treats and delivers and wholesales water to the city of Modesto, so our, our homes and businesses will also be affected. We're still evaluating the impacts, you know, uh, number-wise, what that means for different supplies and, and rates. We're, we're disappointed in, in the State Water Board's action because at the direction of the governor and also the State Water Resources Control Board was um, encouraging uh, volunteers agreement discussions and Modesto Irrigation District together with our partners Turlock Irrigation District and the city and county of San Francisco engaged in good faith voluntary agreement discussions um, in the last couple of months and we worked collaboratively to develop a framework for the Tuolumne River that not only would balance the needs of our customers and the environment but also it included um, an offer of early Im implementation of river flow and non-flow measures such as habitat restoration and predation um, suppression measures. 
And, you know, despite our significant progress in, in putting this voluntary agreement framework together and presenting it to the State Water Board uh, yesterday, Wednesday, December 12th, uh, they still decided to move forward with their plan. And, of course, the water districts plan to continue to fight the proposal and will take all measures to protect their water supply in those communities that they serve. We're still evaluating the state board's um, approved resolution, you know, and the action they took and and the impacts it'll have. We still continue to advocate for a durable solution that can achieve, you know, sustainability and reliability for our environment, our customers, and, and like I said, our overall our communities. Williams said the economic impact of such a water grab would be devastating to Stanislaw County alone. Yes, the, the economic impacts are devastating. Through various studies that we've done, um, our, our water supply supports close to $4 billion worth of economics here, here in, our, in our region. Williams said the water districts do not have much time to respond to the Water Board's decision. We have approximately 30 days to challenge their decision, you know, after they file what they call a notice of determination. So over the next month, we will be definitely analyzing what they agreed to, their resolution, and like and take any appropriate actions uh, necessary, including litigation. The State Water Board did include language in their approved resolution that directed their staff to further evaluate the Tuolumne River Voluntary Agreement Framework and um, come back with an analysis by March 1st of next year. So we'll see where that goes. But again, we're, we're prepared to, to take any appropriate actions as necessary to, to protect our water supply and, and our communities and customers. Again, the Water Board's decision will impact all communities and farmers served by the Tuolumne, Stanislaw, and Merced Rivers. Williams said it also impacts San Francisco customers. Their source of water is also the Tuolumne River. So any cutbacks in water supply, they are they too are affected. So you're talking about close to two million people in the in the Bay Area that that this decision is going to impact. It's just not our uh, our agricultural customers and our agricultural economy. It's it's our urban customers, city residents as well in in the Bay Area and also here in in the Central Valley. That's Melissa Williams. She's the public affairs spokesperson for the Modesto Irrigation District. I'm Patrick Cavanaugh reporting. Yeah, I mean, that does sound like moving forward with that really is going to leave those farmers and those cities just kind of in a lurch, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. It really does sound like that. Oh, boy. Well, you know, there's always something happening in California. California listeners, if you've got thoughts on this uh, uh, move... Let us know. Reach out to us. Find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Ag News Daily. We'll be right there, and we want to hear from you. Um, I've got other news here on things that uh, maybe aren't moving ahead as much as we anticipated, and that is interest rate hikes. Mm. We had another quote today. The Dallas Federal Reserve Bank President Robert Catlin said today – Kaplan, excuse me – said today that uh, the the Federal Reserve should wait at least two quarters before raising rates again. And he said it will take a little bit of time to let this situation unfold, talking about the volatility in the equity markets. He said, quote, I think it's a matter of months, not weeks. And we might see a little bit of a pause here in interest rate hikes. Well, again, I mean, as we've discussed on the podcast before, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yes, what is not having interest rate hikes because on the one hand of course that's great we won't see interest rates hike we won't see um you know personal loan rates hike etc but that also means or indicates that the economy is in a stagnant period of growth 
Yeah, and one of the things that all of these Federal Reserve Bank presidents have talked about when they're talking about slowing down the rate hikes, and I've seen a lot of economists debate this as well, you know, we had 10 years of mm-hmm. a very, very accommodative Federal Reserve policy. We were pumping money in via quantitative easing and all of the other liquidity programs that the Fed started while interest rates were basically at zero. And the worry is that maybe the stock market, the equity markets, got a little too addicted to that flow of money and these super Hmm. low interest rates. And so even though the economy appears to be chugging along just fine, we've got really strong employment numbers, wages are starting to rise, inflation is ticking along at two-ish percent. Despite all of that, every time there's a rate hike, it looks like the stock market is having a little cardiac event. Hmm. And they don't quite know how to react to it, how much more quickly can they climb and still keep the uh, stock market excited. I'm also wondering, too, we had this discussion actually last week on Market to Market. Oh, maybe it was a couple weeks ago, but just the uh, reliance we have now on computer trading and if if uh, the computer algorithms, you know, rely on rate hikes or use it and don't know how to adjust for it when we do or don't have it. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes a lot of sense because those computer programs are programmed by people. If they haven't seen a rate hike or don't know how to account for it, then those programs just amplify it. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Actually, I read a really fascinating study. Um, I didn't read the study. I read the abstract of the study. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, yeah, in full disclosure here. Full scholar um, right here. Well, the study was behind a paywall and I ain't going to pay for it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, But I I will try to find the article and I will link it up to our Twitter and Facebook page. Uh, Basically, it was looking at have we seen computerized trading increase volatility Mm -hmm. in the commodity markets? And my first instinct was that, yeah, we probably yeah. have, right? Right. Wrong. The study went back looking through 2008 through or 2005 through 2017 data. And what they said was that the increase of not just high frequency trading, but ETFs, the ability for people to to exchange trade um, basic contracts uh, that has actually reduced volatility in the particularly the ag commodities, mm. because those folks are often coming in at a point where ordinarily you know, farmers are seeing a rush of sales or the, the trade is seeing a rush of sales, blah, blah, blah. They're coming in and making purchases and they're actually reducing volatility, which I thought was interesting. And I'll don't quote me on any of this because I will find the study <laughs> and I will link it. Oh, okay. But if you're interested in how markets function, it was a, it was a fascinating abstract. Okay. Well, I was like reading the abstracts too first before I read the full article. Sure, sure. Read the full article. Yeah, Yeah, I will. Well, Delaney, before we get too far into our Tech Tuesday discussion, I've got one other piece of news while we're talking about the stock market and strong, uh, you know, basically hiring. Mm -hmm. All of that, of course, leads to something we have talked about quite a bit on this podcast, and that is beef demand. Yes. I've got a story here from our friend Bob Cervera from uh, a conversation he had with Randy Blatch, the CEO of Cattlefax. And uh, they're talking about how demand for beef is growing strong after decades of decline. So let's hear what Bob has to say. Well, we've gone through a major change in beef demand from where we were back in the early 1980s to where we are currently today. From 1980 to 1998, beef demand was cut in half. Now, put that in perspective. That means half the people aren't enjoying their eating experience. That's just, it's not acceptable. The industry got focused on changing things in the late 90s, 
early part of the 2000s and the quality grade started to improve. And today, beef demand has grown tremendously to the point of, of the equivalent of about $20 a hundred in the last 20 years. So it's incredible stores. The spreads have held together very well. The choice select spread is at $10 again this year. That's where it's averaged in here over the last 15 years. So even though the grade has improved 25%, again, going from 55% choice and prime to 80% choice and prime, the spreads tell us that's what the market wanted. People are willing to pay more for that type of eating experience. We have seen some erosion in the prime spread in here in the last year where we've seen supply increase as much as it has. I think that's opportunity. I think that's more opportunity for end users to come back in, consumers to experience the value in eating quality of prime. Average profitability over the last several years, we've had cow-calf producers making two to $300 a head. Cattle feeders have had two of the five best years in history over the last four or five years. Packing industry's making great money. Stocker operators making good money. Everybody's making money. End users are making money. That's what a sustainable business is, is all segments making some money. And I think that's something we should be really proud of. All right. Well, there we go, Delaney. It is good news to see people buying more, particularly more high-quality beef, which I think is excellent. Yes. And speaking of buying more, unfortunately, this isn't coming from the U.S., but we are going to see Japan buying more. Well, actually, really the first time we're going to see Japan buying wheat or buying rice, excuse me, from Australia as part of the terms of their new TPP or CP. A CPTPP, that's quite the mouthful there, the new TPP agreement. And Japan is going to hold its first tender for Australian rice next month. Ooh, very exciting. Exciting for them, not exciting for us, because Japan is the third largest foreign market for U.S. rice. But as we know, the U.S. is not part of CPTPP any longer, and will not uh, be getting the same benefits as those countries in that agreement. Oh, I thought you just said Japan was issuing their first tender for U.S. wheat. No, Australian, for US rice. Australian rice. Aussie, Aussie rice. Those blokes down in Australia. <laughs> Crikey. And since we're talking about Australian news, we actually had this sent in to us by Stuart McCullough. Kind of a funny headline. I don't know if you saw this, Mike, but... Australian lemonade stands feel the squeeze as citrus prices soar more than 300% in Australia because of, um, I guess, because of weather and disease and whatnot. Bad weather has led to a shriveled citrus supply in Australia. And normally, lemons cost about $4 per kilogram. But because of weather this year, People are paying as much as $13 per kilogram for lemons. Interesting. I wonder what the average per kilogram price is, or per pound, because we use real measurements <laughs> right. here in the country. Uh, lemon prices, U.S. Let's just see what we usually spend. In 2017, the retail price of lemons in this country was uh, just about... Two dollars a pound. It was a dollar ninety nine. So that's right on track with How where many Australia kilograms are in a pound. Two point two. Oh, so yeah, no, two point two pounds okay. in a kilogram. So now they're paying basically triple that amount. 
Yeah. Oh, boy. Hmm. That is going to make those little kids out there on the sidewalk corners have to scramble. They're going to have to charge like $3 for a glass of lemonade instead of 50 cents. Yeah. Boy, that's inflation right there for you. (laughs) Well, speaking of inflation, let's look at where the commodity markets left off for today, Mike. Let's do it. Delaney, our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. We saw a down day-to-day in the grains. Manage some of this marketing risk by talking to our friends at Zaner. They can help you put a plan in place. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 or on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. As I mentioned, a little bit of red on the screen here in the grain. Starting with the corn market, March corn down seven and a quarter at three seventy one and a quarter. The May contract also down seven and a quarter to close the day at three seventy nine and three quarters. In soybeans, that sell off has continued. The March contract closed down ten and a quarter cents at eight ninety three and a quarter. The May down ten and a half to finish at nine oh six and three quarters. Chicago wheat was not immune to the sell off. The March contract down three and a quarter at five eleven even. The May down three and three quarters to finish at five sixteen even. Jumping over to the world of livestock, February live cattle up $1.5250 on the day at $126.95. The April up 75 cents to finish at $127.42.50. In feeder cattle, the March contract up 35 cents at $144.75, with the April also up 35 cents to close at $145.50. Handed lean hogs, a little bit of strength today. The February contract up 30 cents at 62.15. The April up 12.5 cents to finish the day at 66.95. Let's jump over to the dairy market and see what's happening in Class 3 milk. The February contract was up 3 cents on the day at 14.33, with the March up a penny to close the day at 14.94. Now, we have kind of an interesting Tech Tuesday episode today. We've got some reports from our friends at NAFE. The first one is audio with Tom Snipes, the CEO of Plant Response Biotech, talking about how crops that can adapt to stressors will perform better at harvest time. Chad Smith has the interview. Advances in plant biotechnology are continuing to maximize crop performance for growers. Tom Snipes is CEO of Plant Response Biotech, a company focused on developing solutions for plant health, stress mitigation, and nutrient management. Their products will focus on plant innate immunity and identifying solutions to help plants through various stress environments. Plant Response has developed really innovative technologies that help plants overcome adverse conditions. We really focused on plant-innate immunity as well as mitigating plant stress. Specifically, that includes how a plant resists stress at a molecular level and also how to stimulate health and growth in the plant. The company's knowledge of molecular pathways and also around plant signaling allows us to focus on using the science of nature. In other words, how the plant actually naturally reacts and identifying solutions in these areas of helping a plant through a lot of different abiotic stress environments. Snipes talks about what growers and retailers can expect from plant response biotech products. A quick example of that would be like our Neptunium product. And this was from a collaborator in Southern Europe that was looking at plants under stress. And so the active ingredient is actually a naturally occurring plant metabolite that the researcher really found was actually present in all plants that were under stress conditions. What he found was actually introducing that plant metabolite to the plant at an earlier stage really showed the ability to mitigate a lot of that stress. So we're using it as a feed treatment as well as other various delivery mechanisms to fight against stresses such as drought, cold, salinity, and vegetables as well as like cereal crops like barley and corn as well. 
Plant Response just closed on $6.9 million in funding. It's the first round of their Series B funding, and Snipes talks about how that impacts their new office and the products they offer. We have several new products in our R&D pipeline that we plan to commercialize in 2019. And look, funding from partners like the venture and investment arm of Bear Crop Science, who's an early investor in the company, Novozymes, who a lot of people know who have a lot of innovative, you know, particularly seed treatments in the U.S. market, a couple of venture capital funds like iSelect and Midland Cap, that are real focused on early stage ag technology. And look, another one that we're really excited about is Yara, who is a global nutrient provider, particularly in the nitrogen area, but very innovative on a lot of different nutrient products for growers. But, you know, having these guys all contributing just gives us tremendous confidence as we continue to make products that really meet the needs of farmers globally. That funding will also help the company to expand partnerships to test their products through field trials and to build bridges between the academic and business world. To learn more about plant response biotech visit plantresponse.com chad smith all right well thanks chad for bringing us that conversation delaney we'll be back next week with a full full tech tuesday episode won't we yep we've got a couple of tech tuesdays lined up now in the books it's just been hard to get back in the swing of things i'm not gonna lie since we started that's the new right year. the holidays always throw things for a loop but mm. i think after today we are caught back up so do stay tuned but delaney if they've missed any past tech tuesdays one of our uh, episodes was with the just determined ag entrepreneur of the year Stephen brockshus from farmland finder we've spoken with him in the past if they want to get caught up on past episodes where should they go to do that absolutely you can head to agnewsdaily.com and that will redirect you to our new home or you can just head straight to globalagnetwork.com and find us there listen to any of our old episodes tech tuesday or otherwise also as mike mentioned earlier you can interact with us on social media facebook and twitter at agnewsdaily with that mike should we let the people go Let's let them go. 